for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Thank you, Val. Friends, please keep Romans 8 open there in front of you. What a, what a wonderful, rich passage, the kind of passage that you, 
you read a paragraph of and you think, gosh, we could spend 20 minutes unpacking that one paragraph, couldn't we? Which means we're about to go for two and a half hours. No, we're not. We just know that we can't say everything. But I've got a question for us as we dive into this because I think it's really the question that the Apostle Paul is pastoring us through as he's done over the last 2,000 years. How do you know that you're right with God? As the old evangelistic question asks really bluntly, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? Heaven or hell? Or to ask it in terms that we tend to think of more naturally these days, how do you know that you are safe? Safe beyond the ups and downs of financial circumstance. Safe beyond the uncertainty of human relationships. Safe beyond even the stability and security of our society. How do you know that you are safe with God? See, if the last few weeks in the book of Romans have highlighted anything for us, it is that we all have more going on beneath the surface than we would like to admit that there is within us a tension between the people that we are and the people that we would love to be. And as we've made our way through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, I think God has been probing us, at least in conversations that I've had with various people, God's been probing and prodding us at various points and leaving us just a little bit uncomfortable, facing up to the reality of our human nature and its propensity to, to turn its back on God. But friends, God's purpose in unsettling us is not to leave us kind of just floundering around, frantically wondering which way's up. Whenever God unsettles us, it is for the purpose of driving us to the one sure place of security and hope and rest. And that's what God is doing for us here in Romans 8. Today we began this reading with that great assurance that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in two Sundays' time, we will finish this chapter with the wonderful, the wonderful word that there is no separation from the love of God that is in Jesus. In Christ you are safe because there is no condemnation, there is no separation. But in Romans 8, we also see that God understands that there are going to be consistent threats to our confidence in those two statements. And in particular... God, through the Apostle Paul, highlights that the two big categories are our sin and our suffering. If there are two things that will cause us to question our assurance of safety with God, it is our sin and our suffering. So next week, as we read on, we'll see how God offers assurance in the face of suffering. But today, we have God's great assurance for sinners like you and me. Because I think anyone who's mindful of their sin will find themselves questioning our relationship with God at various points. If I can do this, if I can be like this, then why would God stick with me? Maybe shouldn't the presence of the Holy Spirit make a bigger difference in me? If this is what I am like, does that mean that God isn't really with me? Does this mean that my faith isn't real? And so God teaches us of the great assurance of our relationship with him in Christ by the Spirit. We're going to unpack it together. After the wonderful summary of verse 1, that there is no condemnation, we've got three key ideas to absorb and really delight in. Um, The objective assurance of Christ for us, the subjective assurance of Christ in us, and the Christian's great privilege of knowing God our Father. We'll unpack some of what those words mean for us. 
So how do you know that we are safe? Well, as Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says so plainly, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you might think, well, why is Paul turning to this at this point? And in something totally unrelated, but a helpful illustration, do you, have you ever seen a chook running around after its head's been cut off? It doesn't happen very often these days because most people get their chicken from Woolies rather than the backyard. Um, but as it turns out, um, Kirsten Sjogren of Science Nordic in Denmark explains that chickens have a semi-autonomous nervous system that is found in their spinal cord, uh, which allows for the crazy sight of a headless chook running around chaotically in the backyard after it's just been severed from its brain. And that's where the saying, running around like a headless chook, comes from. And if you don't know that lovely little Australian idiom, well, you do now. As it turns out, Kristen Shogun informs us, turtles have the same feature in their nervous system and they will keep swimming around once their head has been severed too. There's our fun fact for the morning. The point is, Paul has said that our sinful nature is just a little bit like that. Even when we are in Christ and Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin, he has overcome the power of sin, our flesh, our sinful nature is a little like the chook with its head cut off, still running around, continuing to wreak havoc in our lives. And that reality can leave us wondering whether we really are right with God after all. If I'm still capable of such sin, does that mean my faith is not real? But Paul's been clear. If we are in Christ, we are no longer defined by that sinful nature. We have a new life in Christ. That's why chapter 8 begins with a therefore, therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are safe. But how can you be sure? What if I don't feel like it? And at this point, Paul drills home the great assurance of the objective reality of what God has done in Jesus. And that's what we read in verses 2 through 4. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, that's a great recap of what we've looked at the last couple of weeks. The law was actually unable to change us because our sinful nature not only rebelled against the law but actually exploited the law for further sin. So what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. God did it through Jesus in two really important and related ways. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is to say, the son of God became human. That one truth is blasphemous to Islam and ridiculous to most of the world, but it is truth that in love, God the son shared our nature in every respect except that he did not sin. So he came in the flesh. And we mustn't let every, anyone reduce Jesus to a concept, an idea of grace or of love and kindness or mercy, however you know, appealing that is. We stand in this truth. Jesus actually came in the flesh as one of us. And so that means that he's able to deal with our sin because he is like us, sharing in our humanity. 
He's able to deal with our sin because he's one of us and he can take our place. But there's an important nuance to this verse because he's also able to deal with our sin because he is not the same as us. He came in a likeness, not a sameness. He came in the flesh, but without sin. And that's the first way that God did it. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. That's the second part. Jesus came to do what the law could not do, to deal with sin. God's law shows us sin. It shows us God's good purpose and intent. The law shows us that we need God to deal with their sin, but the law in itself cannot deal with our sin because our sinful nature just keeps getting in the way. But God did it in Christ. And so verse 4 continues, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who don't live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Friends, this is the objective work of Jesus for us. It is objective. It is outside of us. It is not something that we need to feel. It is truth. Christ for us. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but it's not because of how successfully sinless we are after we hear this truth. It's not because of how courageous we feel in light of it. There is no condemnation because of what Jesus has done. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the objective assurance of the gospel that you can build your life on. Because outside of us, Jesus has done what needs to be done. So no depression that you feel, no guilt that you experience, no lack of self-control that you can continue to wrestle with, none of that can undermine the objective fact that God did it. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how do you know that you're safe? Well, because God did it in Christ. That's the first great assurance, Christ for us. And that would be enough if we weren't human. Perhaps it would be enough if God just beamed us up out of sinful flesh into some sort of heavenly existence right away. But God has his purposes for us in this life and he knows that we need assurance. And so the Spirit of God who brings us to faith in Jesus will now dwells in our heart as an ongoing testimony to his ongoing work. And for the grammarians who like to notice the difference, this is where we see the subjective assurance of the reality of Christ in us. His presence in us by his Holy Spirit. And verse 5 and 6, there are a couple of really bold contrasts to show what life is like with and without the Spirit. We read it earlier, those who live according to the flesh, they've got their minds set on what the flesh desires. Or you could say, if you're in the flesh, you're fleshly minded. You, you mind the flesh, you think on it, you ponder it, you will for what your sinful nature wants. Contrast those who live according to the Spirit, who have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. To put it even more starkly, the flesh is set on death, that's its trajectory. The Spirit is set on life and peace, that's where it's going. But I might hear you say, Christian, oh no, (laughs) I know my thoughts. (laughs) Like, uh, I I have all kinds of unhelpful thoughts. Is my mind set on the things of the Spirit enough? Should I actually feel worried by this statement? 
But friend, Paul's point here is not to test you and undermine your confidence, but to reassure you. That if you're even asking that question, pondering that thought, you have your answer. If your mind is concerned for what God wants for you, wondering how you might please him, painfully aware of where you fail and wants to be different, you are setting your mind on what the Spirit desires. It's not a threat, it's an assurance. If you find your mind lifted up out of the the fleshly gutter and up towards God's own mind and purposes, then recognise this for what it is. It is evidence of the Spirit's work in you. And then flowing on in verse 7 through 13, Paul sets that contrast out in even more detail. The mind of the flesh, that's hostile to God. It rebels against God's will. And in the end, it is so kind of opposite to God's intent that it's simply unable to please him. You, however, Paul speaks directly to his readers. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And we might think, oh gosh, that feels like a big if. Be clear, this, this is one of those ifs that is kind of assumed to be true for the sake of the argument. Paul is saying, You're in the realm of the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you, which we know he does. People reading Paul's letter, they they wouldn't be thinking, oh dear, I wonder if I have the Spirit of God in me. They'd be thinking, well, I know I've got the Spirit of God in me. So that means I'm not in the realm of the flesh. I'm in the realm of the Spirit. How good is that? Because Paul's point is that this, this is just the ordinary experience of anyone who belongs to Jesus. That's what he says in the second half of verse 9 right there, that there is actually no other way to belong to Jesus. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. And the opposite is true. If you belong to Jesus, you have his Spirit. Now, this isn't the go-to passage for this point, but it's a helpful aside to see that in this we have a really great corrective to the expectation that some people have that there might be some kind of second dose of the Spirit, that there'd be a category of Christian who's come to Jesus but don't really have his Spirit yet. And later on down the track, they need a special dose of the Spirit. Some people might refer to it as a baptism in the Spirit. Now, this is clear. If you belong to Christ, you have his Spirit. It is the only way you can belong to Christ. And friends, this is the subjective assurance of the presence of the Spirit in your life, what we experience. How do you know that you are safe with God? Because you see signs of life. Signs of life that are only possible because of the empowering presence of the Spirit. As Paul goes on in verse 10, but if Christ is in you, which is, if you belong to to Jesus then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, that's just to say it's the reality of our mortal life, the ongoing conflict with our sinful nature. The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And all the way through, that's not been our righteousness. This is the righteousness of God given in Jesus. And I want you to see that Paul makes it very clear that the Spirit gives that life now, in the present. It's not just a promise for the distant future. One day... But the Spirit gives life. This is the promise of green shoots of new life 
springing up in the present. I think there are two reasons we can say this with confidence. First, Paul doesn't say the Spirit will give life. He says the Spirit gives life, present, now, not just for the future. But secondly, because in verse 11, if you've got it open in front of you, you'll see that Paul actually does go on to talk about the future, the great assurance of what is to come, that just as God raised Jesus, so he will also give resurrection life in the future to our mortal bodies. There is that great future hope. But if we are in Christ, the Spirit of Christ gives life in the present. And the only reason that you can see those little green shoots, those little signs of life, is because you have the Spirit. So the encouragement is really simple. Look at your life in Christ, and anywhere you see the the green shoots of life, signs of the transforming impact of knowing Jesus, of understanding his grace, of, of all that we learn of God and his work for us in Jesus through the Scriptures... These are signs that the Spirit is in you. Because there is no other way that such life would be evident. So the objective assurance, the fact outside of us that we can rest our lives on, comes from what God has already done for us in Christ. You know it to be true. The subjective assurance comes from what we see God doing in us by His Spirit. It's the experience that is real. And I might hear you say, I don't want to look like that. I want to look more like this, kind of a blooming orchard just full of life. That's, that's a forest after the bushfire has gone through and life is just sprouting out everywhere it can. And you might not feel so much like that and a little more like this. But the point is one of looking forward in ongoing transformation where we see the Spirit's always helping us to be mindful of where he needs to grow us to be more like Jesus, which actually means it can be hard to look back and to see all of the change from the old self because in his kindness, the Spirit is constantly making us aware of where those new shoots need to come. And so in verse 13, Paul gives a summary of the Christian life. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's not the Christian life. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And friends, right there, in in a sentence that we can gloss over very quickly, we have a wonderful summary of God's empowering presence hand in hand with our responsibility. We are called to put sin to death, to put to death the misdeeds of the body. And that's not just as a once and for all event, that's an ongoing way of life. Keep putting to death. To choose for what we know in our head and we, and we long for in our heart, for that to transform what we do with our hands and say with our lips and the way we live. But this can't be just sort of a legalistic self-righteousness because Paul's talked about that for chapter on chapter early in Romans. If we just read that sentence, if you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live we'd be right back where we were in chapter 3. Condemned by our inability in our own strength to make a change. The big shift here is in the wonderful work of the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put sin to death, you will live. That's what the Spirit does. He guides us into the truth of Jesus 
and then he grows us in the likeness of Jesus. Which is what Paul sums up in verse 14 as being led by the Spirit. To be really clear in its context, that is not being led by the Spirit in the sense of scratching our heads wondering which job should I take or or who should I marry or where should I go on holiday, but led in putting the misdeeds of the body to death, in killing off sin. The Spirit's work is to teach us to say no to the false master that we've been reading about in chapters gone by, the false master of sin who try and convince me that I have to say yes, or that actually if I just did what it wanted me to do, then it wouldn't be so bad after all. No, this is the work of the Spirit. God's empowering presence, leading us to put that to death. Well, so how do I know I have the Spirit? There's actually that great objective assurance, regardless of how we feel. Do you belong to Jesus? Do you present yourself to Jesus as your Lord and your Saviour, depending on him, the one who has done it for you? If so, rest assured that that is only possible because the Spirit has enabled you to see the truth. He has bound you up with Christ in his death and resurrection, made his story your story and and all the consequences of it. If you belong to Christ, you have his spirit. But isn't God kind to give us an experience of his presence in the present through the miracle of a heart that is transformed to want God's good purposes, a life that starts to show those little green shoots of new life that he's growing in us? And so as Paul concludes this section, he points to us uh, to the wonderful privilege that is there for those who belong to Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because for the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. By him we cry, Abba, Father. Not the, same of, not, 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 not the name of an incredibly, 70, uh, incredibly positive uh, 70s rock band that certain members of the congregation are partially responsible because it comes from Sweden. <laughs> There's this really weird thing here that Paul writes to a bunch of people in Rome. Paul is writing in Greek to a bunch of people in Rome who speak Greek and if they're really smart, probably Latin as well. And yet he writes, by him we cry Abba, which is Aramaic, a very local language to the region around Jerusalem, north and south. It's because Jesus spoke Aramaic. And when he taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to pray, our father, Abba, Dad. And that buried down deep into the hearts and minds of his disciples. What an incredible privilege to be so bold that we would approach the creator of the universe and call him dad. And Jesus invites us to do that with confidence. You see, this is both the incredible privilege of the Christian And I think this is the great assurance of the Christian. Because Christian, this is how you know that you are safe. 
Because you can reach out to the God of the universe knowing that you have his ear. That he loves you so dearly that he's made you his own. Now there might be some of us sitting here today and and feel like that that, that gender-specific language of being adopted to sonship sort of just feels a little bit jarring. I want want to, to assure you that this is not some sexist comment, but it's a cultural reference from the Apostle Paul writing into first century Rome that is him saying as strongly and as clearly and as loudly as he could to his readers in Rome, you are home, you are secure. Because that is actually one word, adoption to sonship. And it's the image in that culture of not just being taken in as a slave into God's household. Not even just being treated as one of the children in the family. But much more, it's, it's actually the legal process of being adopted into the inheritance rights of the eldest son. Full heirs. Everything in the house is now yours. All of the love and the provision and the assurance that the eldest son of the father enjoys, it is yours now too. So how do you know that you're safe with God? However much you might grapple with your own inadequacy, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So rest assured in the knowledge of what God has already done for you, the objective assurance of Christ for us. Rest assured of the encouragement of what God is doing in you, the subjective assurance of Christ in us. And rest in the confidence of who God has made you to be, his own dear child. And he so delights to share everything with you even his own self. So friends, we're going to pray and the band's going to come forward and lead us in a great song that will help us draw our time together to a conclusion. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know us so well. Uh, You know that we are prone to wander and then we are prone to wonder. As we wander off, as we find ourselves stumbling, as we are confused so we find ourselves wondering, gosh, am I really safe with God? Am I really at home? Am I really at peace? A loving Heavenly Father, in our wandering and our wondering, please help us to see the incredible assurance that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. It is finished. And Father, thank you that in your kindness you show us the work that you are chipping away at, slowly bringing new life to each one of us as we put sin to death and keep in step with the Spirit. And so we pray boldly, keep doing your work that we might know that we cry out to you as our loving Father. And so this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.